You're very welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. I know you're going to enjoy this extract from one of our classic episodes with Paul McGrath. It is a special one. And to hear the full length interview, more than an hour's extra content and more deep dive chats with hundreds of the greatest Irish people ever to have lived, head over to Premium. Irishman Abroad over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. This will take you a minute to do. You sign up for a fiver a month and you'll gain access to hundreds of hours of interviews, inspiration, laughter with the greatest Irish people and footballers who've ever lived. And you'll get to walk around with a spring in your step of knowing that you helped this series survive and grow through this very difficult time. Our chosen charity partner is Jigsaw.ie. Jigsaw are a youth mental health charity that works to provide young people back in Ireland with the mental health skills that you and I couldn't get, the mental health skills that we need to survive in life. They're amazing. And since the pandemic, they have seen a 400% surge in demand for their work, their group services, their one-on-one. It's all still going via the phone line and the webinars and the website Jigsaw.ie. They need your help though. Have a look jigsaw.ie see if they can help you or the young people in your life or maybe you can help them through a small monthly donation they need it jigsaw.ie the chosen charity partner of an irish man abroad that's the small talk now let's get down to business now your program what's the big idea well they've grown to know the irish much better we've now got to know how largely their mind works I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Paul McGrath, it is an absolute pleasure to finally have you on the Irishman Abroad podcast. It's taken a while to set up and we very nearly got a face to face interview, but now we're doing this over the phone and, uh, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. You've been a guest that people have wanted on the show since the show began. And I guess when I started researching your journey abroad, I found it absolutely fascinating to learn that when Ron Atkinson first presented you with your contract to play for Manchester United, that your initial thought was, I don't know if I want to sign this. I'm actually earning more money playing for St. Pat's and doing a little bit of metal work part time. Yeah, that's actually a very, very true fact. I I, I couldn't believe because my mum had been telling me my mum thought, as soon as you signed for Manchester United, we, we only saw them on TV back in Ireland. And I loved the uh, match of the day. I loved, I loved the United thing. I loved the George Best, the players that they had playing for Manchester United back in the past. But I actually believed that once I'd signed for Manchester United, which was, was always thought of, even back then, by Irish people in particular, as the biggest club in the world, 
then I thought I would be, I, you know, I was, I was getting a million, and, and, and my mum actually thought, this is more, probably more than me, that I was going to get a million, you know, there was millions of pounds coming and we were moving house and stuff like that. But it, it just, it never turned out that way. And so it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a come down for me when I met Ron in his office and um, he, he kind of bashed out the instructions of what I was going to be getting to the uh, St. Pat's people who went over with me. And it, it was a little bit more um, bringing you back down to a level where, you know, you're not going to be a millionaire and you're not going to just get it overnight and stuff like that. You're going to have to work for it. There's obviously a psychological aspect to that, that he was kind of laying down the law, to, that he'd probably seen it before, that uh, young fellows coming over and thinking now they're Billy Big Balls now that they play for Manchester United. There was that aspect to it. But yeah, you're, for, for, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, very much so. Because because you you, you believe, and, and even in my case, I believed a little bit of the hype. That, because you were in the newspapers, you were in the Irish Times and stuff like that. You had your picture taken in the Irish Times, heading the ball or scoring a goal. or I scored about three goals, I think, in the, in the whole of the <laughs> League of Ireland. But I used to think it was a great thing to do. And I used to come back, um, I was a security guard as well at the time. When I well, sorry, when I first started with Pats, and I used to love coming home, buying the the Irish press or something, and just being able. To, if you saw your picture, you were think, thinking, "Geez, you know something? I'm a superstar." Yeah, you kind of get. There's a little bit of you that gets caught up in it. Yeah, that's true, Jared. A big fish in a small pond is what you referred to it as in your in your book, and as such, the, it seemed like the entire Pat's family had arrived over for that meeting. You said that there was uncle, aunts, kids, and a couple yeah, of dogs <laughs> arriving into no, the room. But, they, but to, be, to be fair to them, I mean, we were a small club. I mean, in Inchicore, Pat's are a brilliant club. They're a family kind of club. I love the supporters of Pat's, and I'm still friends with some of the supporters of St. Pat's. But the actual hierarchy in Pat's, you could tell they were out for blood. <laughs> they wanted a... a big payoff here they were mm. thinking we can sell this guy for whatever we want and i'm thinking well hang on i i don't know what you are even doing because i'm i'm at this stage i'm 22 i should be mature enough to even negotiate my own contract but sure. i had not got a clue because i'd been brought up the way i had in in um in in a, in a kind of a strange situation where i was an orphanage i was in an orphanage for for 18 years of the 22 years that i lived so I didn't, I didn't really understand that this big, big business deal was even going down. And so to have like eight people flying over on a plane with you and walking into Ron's office was kind of strange for me because I, you know, I knew them all, but I just wondered why is everyone here mm. talking for me when I, I can chat to this man perfectly well on my own. So I dig a little bit, I dig a little bit deeper on. You know, my first thought was, well, what changed? Why, if you're initially reluctant, did what changed your mind to go, you know what, I will take it. You described in the book that he kind of bullied you into it. He kind of went, well, if you don't like the money, why don't you piss off back to Dublin? And those were as categorically put as it was, that it was a case of that's the offer, like it or leave it. You know something? I, I actually liked Ron Atkinson. I loved the way because I, I don't, I don't, I only ever seen him on TV. So I, I never, and he was even bigger. He was larger than life when I saw him in reality. 
Mm. But, it, but, but he spoke, he was kind of trying to speak uh, uh, kind of, there was an honesty about him as well. And he was just saying, look, we're trying to get you for as cheap as we can. The guys that you have sitting in your office don't mean anything to me. Like, you know, we're wanting you, the player. You work out a deal with what these guys are going to give you. We're going to give you this. If you want to come. Now, his bluff was, of course, if you want to get back on the next plane to, to go back to Ireland and, and be whatever you're doing, lifting, and at that stage I was lifting metal uh, in a metal workshop. And I just thought, well, you know, I, I, I still could go back to lifting metal. Don't, he, he was bluffing, but I was still thinking, because I'd never been really away from home, so I was, even Manchester United, I was having second thoughts. I can't believe that now. Mm. But at that moment in time, I was thinking, well, you know, yeah, I could still lift enough metal to turn me turn a living. Yeah, but having yeah. said that, then I just thought, no. Do you know something? I actually love playing football. It's he's offering me something that's not a job, and it's with the biggest club in the world. So I'm going, you know, I may as well just throw my hat in the ring and just say yeah, and let the lads then trash out whatever they wanted to trash out. So, so eventually I said, I knew, and I knew he was doing me. I knew I was getting played, but I, but I did want to play football, and I did want to show. Um, that I could hopefully do with 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 uh, the greatest team in the world. They eventually thrash out a deal where United will come and play a game against Pats, and I think thirty thousand pounds was the fee, and another fifteen thousand pounds for when you made your international debut three years later. It seems yeah. so small, whereas at the <laughs> time it was probably massive. It seems so small in the context of what we oh. know Premier League football was to become. I'm really fascinated to know that even though United were viewed as the biggest team in the world, everything that I hear described of the period, it's so much pre-Premier League. It's so different to what we recognise it as now. And for me, I'll be honest, it makes me feel very, very old (laughs) because, because now you hear the vast sums of money and stuff like that and you just think, no, there's no one's worth that that amount of money in football now. But then you, you've got people like Bobby Charlton and Jack Charlton walking around telling you what they used to get. I, I'm being serious. It was it was in shillings yeah. back when they were playing. It was in shillings, and the John Gileses and the and the players who I admire, the John Gileses and the Liam Bradys, and I thought Liam would, would was a multi multi millionaire, like you know. But again. If Liam told you his, his actual wage for playing for, for Arsenal for the first couple of years and stuff like that, you actually think, well, do you know something I've done? I've done not bad, really, to be <laughs> yeah. honest. And, 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 and it's frightening to think a player of, of his ability, or Ronnie Whelan's, was still on reasonably harmly, har- harmless money. I'm sure every player who played back in that era is shocked now by the... I think it's gone a little bit too far, mind you, <laughs> but... But again, they're they're much more athletes now. So so I think some of them are earning their money. When you arrive there, I mean, thirty thousand pounds a week would be a low Premier League income at the moment. I mean, when you when you arrive there, everybody's in yeah. the same boat in in that sense that everybody's oh, yeah. earning roughly the same. And you, there's a bunch of Irish guys there: Kevin Moore, Ashley Grimes, Frank Stapleton, Anto yeah. Whelan, just to name a few. You click into this kind of group and obviously Norman Whiteside becomes a pal. 
maybe I have rose-tinted glasses or a nostalgic view of this period, but I find it hilarious to think that when you move there, you move into digs with a, a lady running a house who basically only serves you eggs. And, <laughs> and it was the odd play of beans when it got thrown in there. And you and Norman are getting three buses to the cliff to train in the mornings. It seems so innocent. Do, do you do you look back on that period and look at it as kind of your college years, the university life that most people kind of look I, I, back on that way? Yeah, I do, I do indeed. I, I, I think, I look back on that time and I just think we had a fantastic, I don't know how, the, the relationship wasn't as, as quick as Norman had said, that as soon as he looked up, we, we just, you know, but we were both from different tracks in, in life and stuff like that. So we didn't click as quick as we thought we would. But I, yeah, I did. I, I used to think when we're getting up in the morning, it was for me, it was just back to being an apprentice. It was like, you know, that I'd, I'd done the work in metal workshops and stuff like that around Dublin. And it was back to being that thing where you get up in the, you get a shout from the landlady, you get up in the morning, you have to jump into this bus, next bus, whatever. And you have to make your way to a certain point where you're going to all sit in a van knackered, like, uh, or you're already knackered anyway. And then you're thinking, now we've got to run around the pitch for God knows how many hours. And I'm not, at this moment in time, when I first went there, for, it took me about um, two weeks at least, if not three, to start to get to like Norman and and, and another three guys from Northern Ireland. Because I, 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 I was like, the black, I, I hate to say it, but the black sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so I... So I genuinely kind of was going, well, if you want to ostracize me and keep me on, keep me on the on the outside, I'm willing to do it. I don't give a schweppes like, but if you know, I like you. He's a nice. You seem like decent lads. If you want to bring me in, we'll either have a bit of crack or we won't. But and eventually, Norman, um, after one game, uh, we played Newcastle. I think it was, and I, I I misplaced a kick out. And it went to Norman, and he actually scored one of the most fantastic goals I ever saw. <laughs> he just he just let a hop once and belted it into the top corner. And I, after that, when I was coming off the coach, he he said to Ron, Ron came up to him, sorry, and, and just said, "How did the big man play?" And it was my last day of uh, it was my last game for on on my uh, month loan. Norman said he was brilliant, boss. He passed. What a pass for the the, the goal. And from that moment and. It just seemed that me and Norman clicked, and we and we've been friends ever since. So it was my mishit past that got past that impasse that we'd had about religion and stuff like that. I mean, Paul, it seems I don't know how to put this, but like what a turnaround! Like for for anyone listening to that, they're going, "That's living the dream." For any young fellow with a with a, whoever kicked a football in a backyard to be at a top flight club playing with a 16 year old Norman Whiteside and miss kick or not delivering a ball onto the end of his foot that goes into the top corner and you get the credit. It's the dream. And yet just two years previous, you were in a position where you were in hospital and people thought this guy's never going to interact with the world. Never mind play football. Did knowing that You'd been through this crash, as you describe it in the book. Yeah. Knowing that you'd been through that, did that did that make it all the sweeter? No, to be honest, because I never I never thought of the the crash that I had was was such 
a feeling of there's no way of getting out of this seriously and i actually did feel that when it when it when, when it was happening and only people who've been through it i think can can tell you that you don't you do not feel like you're ever going to come out of what what's happening to you so for people that so don't for, don't know maybe you can articulate in your words what this well, crash was well this crash was was, was, was I, I was away in germany and i'd, I'd drank for the first time and stuff like that and I'd, I'd, I'd done a lot of things for the first time but mainly I just drank because I just didn't I was I was very uncomfortable because I'd, I'd been as I said I'd been brought up in an orphanage and I, I'd been bullied I'd been a bully I did I did all the things you have to do to, to survive in an orphanage and then when I was 18 I suddenly went away with um it was dark united and and I had a, the, the, they were so good to me that the players were absolutely fantastic to me, and like even borrowing me a jacket because I was still very kind of well, I was, I was basically skinned at the time. And lads were really so good to me. And then once some fellas and they were all going out to a disco and they said, "Just have a, a, a quick shot of this stuff we got in duty free and stuff like that." So I suddenly had this swag and I, I thought, "Geez, that makes you feel kind of warm." And then I had another swag and they said, "Have one more now before we go out." And before I knew it, I was I was dancing, I was caressing, you know, I was with women and stuff like that. And I was thinking, "Oh, this is so. This is what gets you to party and stuff like that." And then I realised that um, I still had to play the games for the club and stuff like that. So, and I played the games and the games seemed to go okay. But I and I scored one or two goals, but. I remember getting a kick in the head um, just before I came back, a bad kick in the head, actually. And I came back and suddenly I, I found myself um, going off the, walking down Dunleary Pier one night, just not wanting to come back, really, to be fair. And um, thank God I did. I, I stopped at the bandstand and, and did, because, it, you know, things seemed to be catching up on me and stuff like that. And I just... I went back to the guy that I was um, sharing a flat with, and, and I just said, "Why is everything strange to me now? Why is everything?" And immediately he knew that I was, I was talking rubbish, and he. And the next thing is, I, I was in the back of an ambulance, strapped down, and, and being brought to uh, St Vincent's. You're brought to Vincent's, and they don't know what to make of it, correct? Yeah, they think, you know, St Vincent's do their best to to try and diagnose what was happening to me, but then they. Um, I think they just thought, you know, he's away with the fairies. So just get him to somewhere where, where, where they can help him. But he, we we can't do it here. Like so, I went to um, St. Lomans and a, a few other places, and there was, it was a horrible time in my life. But it, 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 there was always people coming from um, Dorky, even even if it was, the, and I just I have these memories of of certain friends coming from school, who just want who just wanted to sit there for twenty minutes just talking to me and stuff like that or throwing a ball to me and stuff making me trying to want to catch up I couldn't catch a football and it was it's funny to, from going to be able to know where you can put a ball a hundred yards away with your foot to knowing that you can't catch one in your hands yeah. <laughs> it's the strangest um, feeling that, that I've ever felt in my life and I still and even today when people talk about it like you've just brought it up now Jared and I'm thinking to myself even when you talk about it it's the most ridiculous thing to remember that you couldn't catch a football and yet you could in you know a few months earlier you could belt the ball to 100 yards to within you know within three yards <laughs> i think uh, vincent hogan and you did an incredible job in the book of 
explaining what you've just explained there in a kind of a longer form of how you felt outside of yourself, that you were kind of watching people, that you weren't communicating at all. And he includes other voices of people that visited you at the time and how they were really using the ball to try and coax you out of your shell. And gradually, gradually, it happens like you, you, you do come back to the world. And it is a kind of an inexplicable phenomenon that you're describing. That's not un, unusual in in psychological terms. People do talk about these states. But, but it, what was strange for me was was the, because the first time I and I genuinely had, had, had the last rites in, in St. Vincent's. But I was told. I, I remember telling him there was one nurse in particular who was actually a very good-looking girl, obviously. And <laughs> but I remember saying to her, like when my mum was there, and my mum, of course, was was beside herself with worry. But I remember actually saying to my mum, "I'm going to play in the FA Cup." Now, and and loads of people think, "Oh yeah, now that's put on to gloss up the book or mm-hmm. make the book look bigger or stuff like that." But to be honest, that was an actual true statement because I remember actually saying to her. And then I was very ill at the time, extremely ill. And I actually said to her, I am going to play in the World Cup or the, the FA Cup. I am going to play in the FA Cup. Believe you me, I'm going. And I was thinking, that nurse must have been thinking, what is the FA Cup? Like, <laughs> but, but, I, but I'm, and my mother, and I kept saying it to her, I'm going to play that. And then that became a mantra that I'm, whatever happens here, whatever you think you see lying on the bed at that stage, which, to be honest, I had bed sores, I had every sort of thing, because I, I wasn't getting moved regularly and stuff like that. So I just thought, if I was going to grip onto something, it had to be something about football. And if I was going to grip onto anything about football, it was, in those days, the FA Cup was massive. It was a massive, massive competition. And I, I just thought to myself, well, and, and, and to be honest, I wasn't thinking that well, but I just thought, but it was amazing that to actually say those words to someone and and then even years later remember it and, and, and think, Jesus, you know, how how can it happen that someone can get out of the bed years later and actually become someone and become, not that you weren't someone, but become this person that actually plays in an FA Cup? So it's kind of, it would freak you out if you weren't, um, if it wasn't true. Well, it it is remarkable that, you know, from all accounts, they had written you off. And I mean, whatever about everything else that's happened to you, Paul, throughout your life and the challenges you faced, that alone, that little window that you had there of nearly two years of being bed bound. I mean, you describe in the book your your knees sticking together, your legs actually being having to be prized apart. You were left lying in the one position for so long. For most people, that one incident alone would be the basis of their book that uh, and then I made it back and I did lift the FA Cup. Well, yeah, that, 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 but but it was true that you know because obviously there's there's my my mum used to come up every day because she she lived in Crumlin and and it was it was tough for my mum and my aunt you know to have to get so many buses up to St Brendan's where I was staying at the time. And I remember one day in particular seriously Someone trying to prize, it, it might sound funny now, but it, it didn't at the time, but prize my legs open. But it, it was just one of those things, and I still have the, the and, and ironically, when I when I actually had my first medical with Manchester United, 
he told me that I'd broken a few ribs. Um, and I remember, I remember playing at St. Patrick's where someone actually did, look, because I tackled someone a little bit harshly, he, and then I just looked up and this fellow was flying through the air and he actually kicked me in the rib. And he broke a load of my, he broke one or two of the ribs. And I, I'd never even known about it. He said, no, they've healed up. The Manchester United team, the doctor's team had said, no, they've healed up perfectly. The remarkable recovery from it is is enough for most people to say, well, that was my no. achievement in life. And you were saying that just the idea that you wouldn't get to play football was ultimately what pulled you out of it. But, I, but genuinely, I do honestly believe that most people would be happy with coming back from that and just being being in society. Sure. And, and even in my own case, I think I would have been happy just playing, not even playing soccer again. I never wanted to play... I used to say to my mother, I'm never kicking a ball again. I used to, in, in, when I was in Vincent, I said I, I was going to be in the FA Cup final. And then, but when I was getting a little bit weller, I kept saying, I never want to kick a ball again. I do not want to kick one football again. And the people from Dorky kept coming up. You know, that, I think they had a rotation scheme <laughs> where they, they kept coming up and they kept saying, um, Paul, would you like to come down and just watch? Uh, we're only training for half an hour tonight, so would you come down for half an hour? Just watch us playing. You don't have to join in. You don't have to do anything. And I, I obviously, I wanted to see the lads. I just thought, how nice of you always to keep coming back to the um, to the hospital and stuff like that, and taking turns and trying to trying to get me back on 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 track. And then it was a case of, why, do you want to join in one training session? And you don't even have to kick the ball. We won't even kick the ball to you. And so got like that. So where I knew I was been, to be honest, I wasn't that daft that I was. I didn't know that I was being manipulated back into some sort of um, social integration, really, with them. And and to be honest, I don't think they would have cared whether I whether I played soccer again or not, as long as I got healthy. And and uh, God bless them, Jesus. They they did more than get me healthy. They got me back playing soccer they certainly did because that you know however good you were before this germany trip what followed was what ultimately you know made you the prospect that sir matt busby took such an interest in I, like i wonder in a strange kind of way was it now that you'd seen the other side or you'd seen the brink that now you were playing football differently, or did you just resume what you were doing prior to it? Wow, great question. Great question. Um, no, to be honest, I, I was doing the exact same thing as, as I was doing before. Because I, I still had that same... I remember, like when when Fatima came to play Dorky one time, and someone did call me a, a, a rather bad name, and I kicked him. No, and and he was a big he was a, a big guy at the at the time. But I just thought, well, if I don't if I don't kick him, he's going to call me again. And if I do kick him, and as soon as I kicked him, I walked off the pitch because I knew I was going to get sent off. Like he called me something mm -hmm. that he shouldn't have, and I I did I lashed out with my left foot, which is not my good foot. So I thought, I better catch him halfway right, because if I don't, he's going to come after me. So I was thinking of all these things, and and to be honest, I hit him the greatest boot with my left foot. And I started walking off the pitch then, because I thought, 
he's either going to stand back up and come after me and get me. <laughs> and Fatimer were, were a great team at that time. And I, I admired them as a, as a football team, but I just didn't like... They always had a, they had a little bit of attitude and they were from a certain area. But, and, I grew, and then I grew to love all that team because I, I, I used to play five-a-sides around Dublin with them. But at that moment in time, I just hated that guy. But I didn't want people to think that I was that sort of player. But but at that moment in time, I was, because he'd called me something that brought back something in me that I said, no, I'm not standing for that. And I don't care how big you are, you're going to get a kick in the stomach now. You better get ready for it. I didn't give him really a good chance to get ready for it, but I just I just led off. And that was, so that fire was still in me. And um, yeah, I mean, that, so was the football. That, uh, that physicality end of it, people don't realise when we talk about this now is that... <clears throat> There it is. That's just the beginning to hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full length Irishman Abroad episodes and shows. Join us on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come. For less than a five or a month, you'll gain access to all our episodes, shows, live events and for a limited time only, everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of August will get my brand new stand-up comedy special, Notions 11, shot by my favourite director, Mike Donnelly, in Vicker Street in March 2020. That's hundreds of hours of entertainment, inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees. Over at patreon.com forward slash Abroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe through a donation, you can help them.